Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ray but, uh, Isle, yes. Food and Wine Magazine. Right, exactly. <laughs> nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So you're the executive wine editor of Food and Wine Magazine. I am. That's my title, yeah. How many times then does that mean that you have to prove you're not a wine snob? Um, You know, I, I, I don't have to prove it that often in a weird way because I spend so much time actively trying to get rid of wine snobbery if I, if I can, you know, to stomp it out where it raises its head because... So much of what I do is dealing with an audience that um, is kind of getting into wine and is is thinking they like wine and doesn't know that much. And the last thing you want to do is land all that snobbery on top of them and have them immediately like backpedal and say, oh, God, it's, you know, it's really annoying. But it is true that, I mean, and, and you know this from seeing all the online things and online public uh, kind of notes that you see and so on about how wine tasting is all BS and how, you know, in, in, no one can tell expensive wine from a cheap wine. And so there's an, there's an innate kind of cultural desire to feel that wine is innately snobbish and annoying. And it, that kind of drives me bonkers. I mean, it's a, it's a originally a peasant beverage. It's fermented grape juice. It's about as unsnob as you can get. And what's that audience like for food and wine magazine? I would imagine it's fairly big. Yeah, it's huge. It's um so Food and Wine is circulation is around I mean I forget exactly but it's around 970,000 actual circulation and then readership in the way that the magazine industry measures readership is something like 7 7 million or so, which You're saying I'm not the only guy that borrows someone else's copy. Exactly. You know, that includes doctors offices and airport, you know, lounges and and all those kind of weird ways that the magazine industry measures these things. But so it's a ton of people. And that's that's North America. That's that's really not. There's no distribution in Europe or anything like that. So, so a lot of people out there reading it, and you know, and not all of them are into wine. Some people are obviously buying food and wine just for recipes. Um, they just buy half the magazine. They, they buy, buy half food. the magazine. Yeah, they they stand in they stand in the, the store and rip half, the back half off with the recipes right. and you know take it out. But you know what I hope what my job part of my job as I see it is to is to gradually convert the people who are just into food and wine for food to, you know, take into the, to get into the wine part as well. And what are the tricks to that? I mean, what are the keys to talking to a large audience you want to bring through to this? I think the key, I mean, th- there's a couple, but one is, is capture their attention. You know, that's, that, that's the, 
particularly with an audience like Food and Wines, if you get too geeky too fast about wine, they'll shut down. They'll they'll just stop reading. If you start if you start off your article talking about, you know, the, the depth of the calcareous soil, you know, <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> They've moved on to the next page to see what kind of um, roasting pan they can buy or something. So there's an element of trying to take wine and get people invested in an article really quickly, you know, through life of prose, through whatever quotes that may be compelling to them to, to, to get the excitement there, you know, the kind of excitement we all feel about wine and, and get it across to people. The other way is by filtering wine throughout the, the issue, whether it's a wine article or not. So in food and wine, every recipe that has any context where it might be paired with wine has a wine pairing and ideally a wine pairing that has at least a sentence or two of content that tells them something about the wine or the idea behind why you would pair this wine. A lot of articles that are chef sort of driven articles, which we do a lot of, you know, there'll be a box of suggested wines, you know, whether it ties into the region the chef is from or something to do with the restaurant they're at or whatever the concept for the article is. The idea is that there is that even when you can't have a full on wine article, there's wine content kind of smuggled into the rest of the magazine. And I, I like that because it's, you never know when someone's going to look at a recipe for cassoulet and there's a three line thing at the end saying, why don't you try this with, um, Bandol or whatever. And, and it'll pop in their head and they'll suddenly say, well, sure. What the hell? And they'll go out and buy a bottle and then perhaps be converted. You know, I feel sometimes like a proselytizer as well as a journalist. Cause I, I do love wine. I, try and get more people invested in it three line pieces that must mean that you're encouraged to write punchy sentences yeah i mean punchy or or even fragmentoid <laughs> you know that i mean those are the those are the little sort of tag ends of, 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 the, of the recipe itself so you try and be both punchy and informative in in a very tiny amount of space and also because the recipes are extremely formatted and there's limited space in that context, you can't actually cut the tablespoon of salt out of the recipe just because you wanted to write a longer wine note. Whereas the wine note, unfortunately, can always be trimmed back in case, you know, should we have forgotten the olive oil in the recipe or something like that. Yeah, Ray, we, we included extra lines for you, but we forgot to tell the audience to preheat the oven. Yeah. Do you ever have that conversation? Um, yeah, more or less. I mean, I, 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 there's, a, there's a fair amount of... It's it's very you know it's a it's a happy crew at Food and Wine, but you know there are times when I am desperately struggling to get to sort of lever more wine into things. So it's more often a, a fight between words and pictures. That's I'm always in favor of more words. The art department, strangely enough, is always in favor of bigger pictures, and you know it's a negotiation. Because that does seem to be a big part of the wine and style and lifestyle publication these days is pictures, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean the visual the visual is always a way of creating a world for the reader or, or watcher or whatever you want to say they are. That's how we feel at the podcast too. Yeah. Heavy yeah. on the visuals. Because the visual aspects of the podcast are really extraordinary. And I, I don't know if people have accessed those yet, but um, you know, you can, if you, if you take the right things or something, it's a, uh, you know, I love the way food and mind looks. It's a very, a lot of thought goes into the, the visual aspects of the magazine, but there is that a page is only so big, you know, it's, it's, you know, X number of inches wide and X number of inches tall. There has to be, there have to be images and text and there has to be some type of graphical variation too. And so, you know, there's always a negotiation. The other thing is that magazines, you know, any given issue of a magazine 
is only a certain number of pages long. And that's, it's a, it's somewhat determined by advertising. The more ads you have, ads are always on a right side facing page. The more ads you have, the more pages you can add to the magazine that have text on them. So it's a little bit like an accordion. So our big ad issues like the October wine issue, the November Thanksgiving issue, basically holiday entertaining and the holiday issue like December, those are, those are massive issues, partly because there's so much advertising. January, which is post holidays, you know, immediately accordions down a lot of pages. And the effect that that has is there's more room to write. There's, there's room for more articles and there's room for, for somewhat longer articles in those big issues than there is in something like January where you're, everything gets trimmed back quite a bit. So that's just part of the mechanics of the magazine business. And that's true. You know, at different magazines have different, you know, our big issues are the fall, which is when holiday, when entertaining happens, you know, somewhat like the wine business, you know, the massive amount of sales are in the fourth quarter of the wine business, you know, travel and leisure, which is in the same floor of the building as us, their big issues are, are undoubtedly different and have to do with when people travel for vacations and stuff like that so you see them working overtime at different times of the year exactly yeah and you're walking out the door being like see you later <laughs> of course there are times there's also the weird thing about magazines with you know about print magazines which is the lead time we're working with which is a long lead situation so you you're know, already uh, thinking about ice fishing right now like well we were summer. we were we were legitimately actually roasting turkeys today in the test kitchen you know and it's it's not even june <laughs> so you know so there's there's a lot of work in advance um you know which you know i always used to, when i was earlier when i was at wine and spirits you know many years ago but um we'd over always tasting port in august for the for the December port roundup and you know you're sitting there sweltering thinking oh, now i got to taste 20 vintage ports but it feels like just as in restaurants, chefs kind of brought sommeliers through to prominence that in the magazine, chefs are bringing the wine recommendations through to prominence in Ab a way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think that there's, I mean, if you look at the U.S., there's been this massive boom in interest in food, both in sh chefs and celebrity chefs and kind of the, the, the rock and roll aspect of restaurants, you know, which may go back to Anthony Bourdain's book or, or slightly previous, you know, and emerald and so on but there's also just a much more interest in food and and cooking and in you know how to make things that you actually really really are excited about eating and i think that wine has been pulled along behind that and in, in a great way which you know it's it's helped give more visibility and gain more interest for wine you know it's i think when people start to th think about cooking think about making you know think about recipes and think about actually doing something other than uh frozen you know tv dinners they also eventually start thinking about what they're drinking with what they're cooking and maybe suddenly diet coke doesn't seem like the answer so so i think that's happened i, I think you know you haven't seen sommeliers yet become celebrities the way chefs are but that's that's a sort of a separate you're saying i'm not famous you're extremely famous, that, but you're a radio, you know, and podcast personality. Oh, that's that's, okay. that's a very okay. that's a very different thing. That's you know, yeah. you hurt my feelings yeah. for a second. No, no, you're, you're my mom knows who I am, Ray Isle. Yeah, you're, all right? you are huge, and there is no escaping that. Um, you know, I, as I recall, Angela Merkel from Germany was going to be in for the next interview here, so it's 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 cool. She's it's cool often stuff. over to the home. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, but the the problem with wine and TV, which is what where the chefs have sort of like rocketed into the celebrity status is, is that wine is a whole lot less visual than cooking. It's 
doesn't involve knives. It doesn't involve fire. It doesn't involve running around in pans and boiling over and all this kind of thing. And additionally, it's not something you can do yourself at home. Very, I mean, very few people make wine at home. It's not, a, it's not the way that everybody can cook dinner or can look at what a chef is doing and think, well, I'll make risotto. They can't sit there and think, well, I'll make some Pinot Noir tonight. And so those two things together, I think, have made it harder to to get that kind of cultural celebrity visibility for the wine side of things, which which I'd love to see. I mean, <laughs> well, you were on the TV show for a while. On I was. PBS. Yeah. On Vine Talk. Yeah. On PBS, which ran for a season and then ran into troubles with with funding, which is the nature of PBS. And, you know, somewhere out there, the producers are still trying to put together a second season. So, you know, fingers crossed. But it was... You're saying I should have spent more money to get that VHS of the Masterpiece Theater? You absolutely should have. You know, you, you know, support your local PBS station so that I can go on the air and talk about wine, which is kind of not necessarily what people had in mind, I don't think. Um, it, it actually was a good workaround of a, of a wine show because the, the idea was get celebrities on the show who will drink wine, talk about it, in theory, like wine. And then also, therefore, people will tune into it because there are celebrities on it and then stay to watch the wine content, which... You know, it wasn't a bad idea at all. Um, but there were some odd aspects, you know, in talking to, I know from talking to the producers that when they talk to agents about getting people on the show, there the answers, there were basically four answers. One answer was, sure, we'd love to do it. Second answer was, no, <laughs> go away. You know, that'd be the answer from, you know, Bob De Niro or something who's too famous to bother with a PBS show about wine. You're assuming there would be an answer. I'm assuming Bob, there would be an answer. I mean, I, probably there wouldn't even be an answer. There'd be like, you know. <laughs> deafening deafening silence. silence. Are you talking to me? Because I can't hear you. Because I can't hear you. Yeah, you don't exist, you bug. Um, but the third and fourth answers were the, were the great ones, one of which was, well, he can't do that show anymore, <laughs> you know, or she. Right, sure. And, and the fourth one was great, which is, you know, you really do not want him to do that show <laughs> we've seen yeah you've seen <laughs> maybe a little too much put, put that person on a show with an unlimited supply of wine and it will be a disaster <laughs> so maybe that's good television yeah you know up to a point <laughs> it's just like terrifying but it's not every wine writer that would have got tapped to do that gig i mean i think you're a little bit more charismatic on camera than some no that's for other people to judge i, I mean uh, one thing I, I i can say is i like do, i love doing tv it's fun i love performance i've always liked being in front of an audience i'm basically a large ham um well cured at this point, <laughs> but put it in the Christmas issue. It's right, um, but you know, it is TV does. Tra one thing it translates is that if you don't want to be there, it's really clear you don't want to be there. And if you do enjoy it, that comes through as well. For better or worse, or for whatever reason, I seem to be able to be on camera and and basically be myself without seeming artificial, which is. God knows why. I mean, early spending most of my college career doing acting. I don't know. You know, that may have been part of it. Is that true? It. You did some acting? Yeah, it was, I did a lot of, of theater stuff in college. You know. You were playing a wine critic? You were like. I was. It's <laughs> mysteriously empty, you know, empty theaters. Um, no one would come. I don't know what the deal was. But um, yeah, so I ended up, you know, I ended up doing, and partly because Food and Wine had, you know, has internal PR who do outreach for this kind of thing. I started doing some local TV and then. I've seen you on TV a lot. Like little spots, yeah. You know. Um, Today Show, Bloomberg TV, you know, CNN, got a bunch of different stuff. Fox Business News of all things. That's a strange one. So how do um, those things differ? You show up. What do they tell you? The, you show up. What you usually do is you pitch. If they, if you've been on a lot, they come to you sometimes. But it, generally, what happens is the PR people pitch an idea. Let's say I do an article about fantastic wines for grilling, just you know, real low hanging fruit, and someone reaches out and says, "What about?" 
you know, a TV spot about fantastic wines for grilling. Ray is really good. Bring him on TV. He'll talk about fantastic wines for grilling, you know, or oddball wines that you've never had before or something like that. You work out with a producer. Usually you're looking at a tops like three and a half minutes segment for, you know, for TV that's that's national TV or something like that. You work out what four or five wines you might talk about, what sort of trends they represent, that kind of thing. And then on air, they're the hosts, but in, in truth, whoever's doing the segment with the host is usually sort of should be sort of driving the segment because you're the one who knows about the stuff and they don't. And they've, and they've done 20 other segments that day with 20 other people about 20 other things. And the... Do they ever get confused and ask you about the weather? Over to the weather with Ray Isle. Oh, they, they get confused. I mean, or or they just go, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm on with Kathy Lee and Hoda on the Today Show frequently, actually. And I, I love them both. But they occasionally, it just goes kind of haywire as they randomly head off to whatever topic you want. Um, they tend to have a lot of wine in those glasses. They have a lot of wine in those glasses. Though, you know, I was, t- I was talking with Kathy Lee at one point and she said, you know, it's also a shtick. It's like we, if you if you watch them, she said, I mean, what she said was interesting. She said that the segments that I do on on there on air there and that Leslie Sprocco does, who also does stuff them. Those are by far the segment that they drink the most wine during because they actually do taste all the wines we bring. Whereas um, a lot of times they have wine in hand, but they don't drink that much. If you if you actually watch this thing straight through, there's not much that much wine consumption. And it's it's a bit of a, you know, it's act, you know, it's it's a shtick. It's it's it look it's fun. And um, weirdly, if it came out of an appearance of that Chelsea Handler was on their show for her book, "Are You There, Vodka?" It's me, Chelsea, and that was the start of this whole Kathy Lee and Hoda thing. But you know, then there's other TV that's very different. Which you know, when I do Bloomberg or or do On the Money on CNBC or something like that, that's often much more about the wine business and. You know the rise of the insane rise of hard cider in the over the past few years, for instance, and they'll a lot of it around now. A lot of tons of it around. It's crazy, and and they'll say, you know, what are the stats on this? You know, what does this represent? Is this you know, or is this going to be taken over by big brands and so on? So that's a very different from the lifestyle kind of thing. And then occasionally I do radio, you know, splendid table primarily, which oh, and I love doing radio and or podcasts because you can actually talk coherently and at length about stuff whereas tv is always hyper fast and and very soundbitey and so you the depth you can get to is not that great you know the entertainment value i mean i would not i mean for halloween last year i think on today's show i dressed up like a vampire you could have done that today right <laughs> i could have done that today no one sent you the email that said don't dress up like a vampire you know, for the podcast but you know how often do you get to dress up like a vampire and go on tv i mean what the hell this is kind of insane and fun you know um, when you're a vampire and you have red teeth from the wine you've been drinking no one it, gives you a hard time that's right they just it just goes with the role when you're composing a soundbite i mean <laughs> what goes through your mind what's a good thing to say well so what you want to do is you want to say something that is quick coherent and memorable ideally and the thing you can't do is ramble because because there's so little time in the segment if you're trying to get through five wines you've got a very minimal amount of time so recently i was on with a boxed wine that was garganega and pinot grigio this for a summer wine segment and it was partly about the wine i mean that one i was doing wine gadgets for summer as well as as wine itself that one essentially on air what you're going to say is you know, this is this box wine. It's 20 bucks. You know, I think for the price, it actually provides sort of really great, crisp, kind of slightly peachy, slightly citrusy fruit. It's 
what I like about it is that it's Pinot Grigio, but it's also most it's in fact mostly Garganega, which nobody knows what it is. This is talking to a TV audience. I mean, you say on air, nobody knows what that is, but it's actually the grape that goes into Suave. And so it's kind of cool. It's like a Suave, but not a Suave. And then you're on to the next wine. So at least you get something across about it. And you also hope that the host who's tasting it likes it as opposed to hates it. A lot of the times, depending on the show, they'll pretend to like it no matter what it is. Some networks won't let you taste at all. The Mormon uh, network? Well, it's weird. You know, so like uh, Good Morning America, GMA, which is owned by Disney, doesn't do alcohol, doesn't drink alcohol at all on the show. Fox, I, if I'm remembering right, doesn't, there's no drinking. There's just point talking about the bottles. Pretty sure Mary Poppins used to like, you know, definitely hit the bottle now and again. Yeah. You know. <laughs> just seemed like she was that personality. All, a lot of kids, you know. Little Sherry, little yeah. Nip. But, um, you know, it's, you kind of, you kind of have to accept that the medium does not allow for, you know, a lot of in-depth analysis of what you're tasting. So you try and keep it light. You keep it, um, there, there's some other things, you know, that if you say, I mean, there's some of this me, is media training stuff. If you say on TV, I like this wine, people kind of pay attention. If you say, I like this wine because, because is one of those words that makes people pay attention. Their memory snaps to and lasts longer. The other thing is like, there's about 15 seconds before someone starts to look around, you know, for the next thing you're going to talk about. There's a really short ascension span with TV. There's also stuff about how people's eyes track. You know, if you, if you, you know, when you look at on any talk show, you know, the host, David Letterman, whoever will be sitting on the right and the guests are sort of arrayed to the left because your eyes track left to right and you end up on the host. And that's why the host always wants to sit there. Um, but there are some just practical things about how people watch and how they pay attention that play into it you know there's other things you can't wear a white shirt on tv is that true blows out the exposure yeah it may i mean you can but the crew will be annoyed with you if they're shooting high definition tv you can't wear really tight i mean nobody can see the shirt i have on but it's a, it's a gingham shirt that's a tough pattern on high def because it'll sort of do a more very stylish in person however that's me you know i i do my best <laughs> um as I as I sit here in my socks, um, but you know it'll start to do a kind of more pattern on the TV, which is not what you want. The other weird thing is getting used to them putting makeup all over your face. Which yeah, what's is, that like? Well, if you're me and you don't normally wear makeup, it's weird. It uh, especially because some places use kind of standard, you know, standard makeup. Some places that are moving quickly was like uses a airbrush. It just goes and sprays your entire face with base so that you're one solid color that doesn't, you know. <laughs> any of your imperfections are just matted right out. I've had wines like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very similar to being turned into a mass market wine. You know, um, <laughs> you've become a mass market human. So you stand up there and how do you know which camera to look in? Are they prompting you? Or? You typically look at the host. The easiest way to think of it is you, is forget there's, I mean, kind of be conscious there's a camera, but forget there's a camera. You're not going to look directly at the camera. You're going to carry on a conversation with the host that is seemingly natural, but somewhat heightened. The other thing TV does is it tends to flatten out your affect, let's say. So if you smile normally, you'll look like you aren't smiling. If you smile a lot, you'll look like you're smiling normally. You know, if you have no expression, you'll look like you're really unhappy. And so that there's a, unfortunately for me, if you, you also appear larger than you are, which, uh, you know, is a drag, but and it's always weird to meet people that you think of as being, you know, slender on TV because then you meet them and they're like emaciated. But but it's uh, so that there's an aspect of being natural and being heightened at the same time. And that's kind of a learned, you know, you just learn to turn up your volume a little bit. And some some people who are so I remember um, 
Julianne Moore was on the PBS show with me, which, which in and of itself cool. was really great. It's like, ooh, I'm on camera with Julianne Moore. God damn. Um, but, and and she's a, a great actress as opposed to just a you know, random character like me who writes about wine and occasionally is okay on TV. It was absolutely fascinating to watch her because, she, I mean, she's beautiful to begin with, but as soon as the camera was on, and I, I have no clue how this, how she did this or whether it even remotely conscious. I don't even think it was conscious, but it was someone like just, it was like she was on a dimmer switch and someone just turned up the dimmer switch and she just was radiant. And it wasn't a change in the lights. It was just like suddenly you're magnetized to look at her. And I, I guess it's the actual manifestation of star power or something, you know, where, you know, someone like that, when the camera's on, they're just on in a way that, that really draws your attention. So that was pretty cool. So when you're talking about wines for a large audience like that, is it important to find wines that are kind of more affordable or what do you think about? Yeah, I th- what I think about when I, well, particularly for, I mean, even for food and wine, it's an issue. Uh, for TV, it's a, it's a big issue. Typically, TV doesn't want expensive wines. Well, shows like, morning shows like Today Show that have a very broad and broad audience across kind of, you know, whatever, you know, economic class it is, usually want affordable wines and findable wines I've managed to get some very weird wines on that show at times, but I typically try and stick to things that are nationally distributed that have some distribution because otherwise all you do is recommend a wine that 6 million people watching today show can't find anywhere. And they're like that asshole, you know, know, and then they write in and then the producers are annoyed. So you want things, but you also want things that are actually good, you know? And so it's that, that balancing act of finding something that has, reasonable production that has distribution and that actually is good and is, and is interesting. It's not the same old, you know, the same brand every time with, it also depends on the audience of the show. If you're doing a financial show, you know, you're looking at a different audience with different income level. So you may be able to get away with 30 or 40 buck bottles of wine, you know, or I've done a holiday segment on something where I brought, you know, Dom Perignon Rosé, which is not cheap in the slightest. And, and that's because they wanted something super expensive to go with it. And so right, if you brought something cheap, they'd probably be like, yeah, I'll recommend that for my secretary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Thanks for bringing the really exciting $8 wine. But, you know, with food and wine itself, not getting off the TV thing, we're a national magazine. We're, we're in every single state. There's, you know, however many million readers. And what I try and do is walk a line between recommending things that are widely, widely findable and, somewhat widely findable and then you know i try and throw in some things that are labors of love to find that you know and it and it's a little contextual it depends on the article and and who it is but there's got to be some room to put in wines that are simply going to be hard to find you know i mean i've certainly i've written about frank cornelison and at food and food and wine those wines aren't exactly you know in every safe way on every you know in every supermarket everywhere but i figure it's worth the you know there's a little bit of window shopping too that's that happens with wine so at least it's it's worth getting the name out there you know i did an interview with sean thackeray for the magazine that hasn't run yet and you know and his wines aren't you know pleiades is fairly findable if you look um the other wines are are really hard to find but he's fascinating enough that it's worth doing you know and and then you can kind of balance it out with occasionally do you know a roundup of pinot grigios or something and you know in that case you try and run a line between some that are Veneto and some that are Friuli and some that are Alta Adige and some that are smaller production and some that are larger production and just stay away from the ones that you know you loathe. You know, I try and I try and make sure that no matter what the production is, 
and how findable it is. At the very least, I like it. I mean, I don't write about anything I don't like. And the other nice thing about food and wine is that I've never been forced to write about anything for reasons other than my own preferences, which is which is great. And you've been there 10 years. So what's it like watching the wine market change over 10 years? I mean, a lot's happened, it's, right? Yeah, a lot's happened. You know, it's the the a lot's happened with the market, both in terms of what wines are here and in terms of what wines people are interested in or willing to take a risk on. I mean, I think one of the big, big things that's happened over the past 10 years, it's probably even more like 15 years, is the arrival of another, another generation of wine buyers and also ongoing greater willingness of particularly younger wine buyers, meaning under 50, I don't know, yeah, under 35, I don't know where they are, to, to try to try anything. It's, I mean, the analogy I use is my, my father-in-law who drinks doers and he drinks doers and that's what he drinks and that's all he drinks. If you're yeah. like, I got some red label for yeah, you. He's actually, like, actually, F you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think he, he also drinks country gentlemen or something like that. I forget what it is, but you know, that's, that's, that's as the, we are all that's the want stuff. to do. Yeah. But when it's like, if he wants something good, he drinks doers. And so, um, you know, and that's, that's kind of the old school of things is you have your drink and you drink it. And, and now, you know, I think that particularly in the in the younger wine buying zone, you find that people would rather not drink the same thing over and over again. They want to try all sorts of different things. And that's and together with that, and it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, there are just radically more wines in the country from everywhere than there were 10, 15 years ago. I mean, you know this from being in the, in the wine business in the 90s, which is when I got into it too. You know, if you looked at wine lists in the 90s, it, the amount of esoterica available was fairly small. And if you go into particularly Italian restaurants these days in New York, at least, I mean, you know, I write about wine full time and I drink a lot of wine and I study the field and so on. I can walk into a restaurant here and look at the list and be like, I don't know half of these producers. And that's, you know, there is a lot of, of wine out there and from every conceivable region. And it's, it's a huge change. The other thing is that, you know, I think, uh, you know, market's changed a little bit too in that it's it's funny. It it actually, if you look at statistics at least from Wine Market Council last year, the, the percentage of wine sold in off-premise versus on-premise, the, the off-premise is actually increasing in on-premise vis-a-vis, sort of comparatively with restaurants, retail sales are increasing, which is surprising to me because restaurants seem so popular right now. But I think the visibility of restaurants and sommeliers and the kind of wine lists and all that stuff is much bigger than it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, it's a, it's an interesting one. There's, there's also, there's also the decline of, decline of the power of the major critical voices, I think is a big thing that's going on. And that's partly due to social media. It's partly due to a generation, people who just don't really know Robert Parker or haven't given any thought, you know, or, or the spectator and don't really read it. I mean, we're food and wine's kind of in a, in a different category because we're really a gastronomic culinary magazine. Not a we don't rate wines, so we're not in that in that game. But the amount of wine information out there and the amount of different opinions about wine is so much more vast than it was, you know, ten years ago when those kind of two main voices were arbiters of a wine selling in a store well or something like that. That, that that's really fascinating, you know. And I, I, you know, as everybody has said, and probably you know, can't imagine anybody you've had on the show disagrees. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't see a replacement, uh, replacement coming up with that kind of critical influence. You know, I see there's some great critics out there, but I don't see one 
single human having that kind of dominating influence in the industry anymore. And that, and 10 years ago, that was, that was much less the case. But in an era where there's big tectonic shifts in the, in the landscape of wine criticism, it seems like you as an everyman, every man never goes out of style, right? Well, I'm hoping, <laughs> you know, if I can, I'm hoping not to go out of style. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. I don't, I mean, I love, you know, expensive esoteric wines and all I write about a mix of affordable and findable wines. And then the nice thing about online is you get your, your freedom to write about kind of, I mean, as long as I can produce content, I can write about, you know, Grofner, for instance, which I did a, a blog post about. And I thought that was ago. a nice piece. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I mean, he's, he's so much fun to quote and the wines are so fascinating and that I can on, run online at food and wine because online is kind of infinitely expansible. And therefore, some of the people who are in our audience who would be fascinated, or I like to think fascinated by it, will find it, and then other people just won't ever get there. But and that demographic probably skews younger online, right? Yeah, the definitely, definitely, absolutely. And so, how has that openness to new wines affected your own approach? I mean, have you felt that you are doing more pieces like on Gravner or more personality-based pieces on? One thing that openness to new wines does is it is it it means that when you do a, a kind of a a basic service piece like, you know, 20 great under $20 wines, you're not stuck with doing kind of the familiar categories because the interest level is there. If you say, you know, one of your 20 buck on 20 buck wines is, you know, a great assertico from Santorini, your audience won't think, oh, well, I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm certainly not drinking any darn Greek wine. And because there's so much good wine that is affordable, that's coming out of the new regions, partly because they're not known as well. That means that your options as a writer are vastly increased over what they once were, which I think is great. You know, and additionally, it means that occasionally I get to put things through in the magazine because there is that interest for unknown, new, deeply artisanal, oddball stuff. And I, and again, that, that may partly come out of food, too, in the same way, you know, people are, you know, a chef like David Chang wouldn't have been the standard person to be in a food magazine in 1995. You know, there wasn't someone rewriting, you know, Korean cuisine in a East Village, New York context in that way. You know, that's what, you know, that kind of breaking of expectations and or, or groundbreaking approach to whatever cuisine it might be, you know, whether it's Rene Redzepi or David Chang or, or whatever, that that's what readers actually want right now. They're, they want a lot of that sort of what is the next thing? What is, you know, what is exciting that's new? And that, I think, travels over into wine as well, where people want it. You know, they, they know about Chardonnay. They still want to know what a good Chardonnay is for 15 bucks because, you know, America buys an enormous amount of Chardonnay. It's still the number one, number one grape in the country. But that doesn't mean they also don't want to know what an Assertico from Greece is or what that they make, you know, dry wines in Hungary that, you know, from Permit that are kind of cool and this sort of thing. As always with magazines, it's a weird situation because the feedback you get is so minimal you know if you have these million readers not all of them write in to tell you that they enjoyed the article i apologize i meant to do that i i've been meaning to call you out on that since this interview started so i'm glad you brought it up and saved me the embarrassment of of getting my vanity up here 255 nice notes i don't send you 256 and you get i know and i get pissed off well you know writers are sensitive this is you know they're they're notoriously you know they have problems with ego um and lack of um you know, you people read. They read in their privacy in the home. They read on the subway. They read wherever they read, and you don't know if they actually like what you want. But if they don't like it, you tend to hear. You know, that's what you're more apt to hear about. And 
I've never gotten complaints ever about these wines are weird. You're writing about strange stuff. You know, I, um, the, you do get, I can't find it. But what's weird is that you'll get complaints about, I can't find what you wrote about, whether you write about Behringer or you write about, you know, Movia. And it's one of those odd things where people write in and be like, you recommend a, let, let's say it's Behringer, maybe not, you know, basic Behringer, but, but a Behringer Napa Valley Chardonnay. They'll be like, I can't find this anywhere. And at which point you say, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. Um, you know, but it's partly also the weird, freaky nature of distribution in our country where it's very hard to find specific wines. There's, you know, however many tens of thousands of labels out there and the odds of even with a well-distributed wine, the odds of any one store having that specific wine are fairly minimal. And it's take a, a broadly distributed like Chris Pinot Grigio from, you know, which is Winebow brings in, which is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big brand. There's a fair amount of it out there, but I can guarantee you, you can walk into random wine stores and some one or th one out of five will have it or something like that, or maybe one out of 10. And so your readers are always frustrated by this, but that's, that's another question about just, you know, if it were simply able to be sold directly across the country, it would be a whole different story like shoes or whatever else Amazon is currently busy selling. So the feedback loop for writing, maybe not so great where you don't hear a lot from the readers, but right. you're also involved with a lot of events where you're rubbing shoulders with these chefs that you're talking yeah. about and people are coming out to meet you. So what do you hear at those events and has that changed over the years? I mean, you've been doing years of events now. Yeah. And I do a lot of, I, mean, I do a lot of wines. I mean, what, basically what I do at events is wine seminars, um, which I love doing partly because you get that immediate feedback and people walk right up to you afterwards and ask you questions. And you know, it's funny, I, I got into wine out of teaching in academia, and it's, you know, teaching a wine seminar is not that different from teaching a literature class, except that with a wine seminar, everybody there wants to be there, which is good, and half of everybody there will be buzzed by about two-thirds of the way in. So you have to front-load your, your hard information, because they start to really not pay attention after a while. But, um, it's a blast, and it is. It has changed over time. The questions have gotten more, more. People are more wine savvy. I think is the best way to put it. Even beginners are are more wine savvy than they used to be, and people are really curious. You know, the people who come to events like I, mean, I was saying, we have an event, and and thank God we do, in the Cayman Islands in January. Which, um, that sounds cool. Yeah. I mean, the marketing department at some point said to me, would you be willing to go to this? And I said, yes, I'd be willing to go to it. Do I look like I'm insane? Now we know the real reason the January issue of food and wine is so slender. It's, it's very slender because, you know, we've got to go down to Cayman, you know, absolutely. But, um, but, you know, I was doing a wine 101 under whatever name I had to be a wine expert in 45 minutes, something like that seminar down there this year. And people had great questions and they, you know, some of them are very straightforward questions. Well, they're actually not that straightforward to answer, but they're the sort of questions you get, like, are expensive wines really worth it? Which is a complicated question. You know, it, it depends you know, how much, I mean, how much money do you have? If you're Bill Gates, then sure, expensive wines are worth it because it's the equivalent of dropping a quarter. Um, but, you know, those are interesting questions. But you also get questions from people you don't expect, you know, with, you know, so what's the difference between these different forests in France that make oak? And I think the kind of overall... And I, and I suspect this is because of the level of accessible information online is so high. The overall depth of questions is, is much higher than it, than it used to be. And the, the other thing is that people have been exposed to more and different wines. 
you know, and so they haven't just had Chardonnay, Cabernet Merlot. I mean, you know, if you go back to the beginning of 2000, not that many people had had Pinot because, you know, sideways hadn't happened and all of America hadn't decided it loved Pinot. You know, so, you know, now people have had a lot of different wines, particularly in restaurants. And it's kind of fascinating questions you get. You also get some questions that, I mean, I, I very actively tell any, like, sort of wine one one audience, there are no dumb questions because you, you don't want people to feel embarrassed about asking questions. But you do get some, you know, you do get occasionally get the, you know, oh, I'll, people say it tastes like plums, but are there plums in it? Questions and things like that. You just say, well, you know, got to start somewhere. <laughs> it's a big problem when you start talking about orange wine. It is. Yeah, orange wine is, I, I, I haven't tried in, you know, putting the orange wine thing into the wine 101 context because, yeah, it's just going to go haywire. This, uh, there are some things that were not meant for, for a mass audience. This sun kiss is real tasty. <laughs> it's real tasty. Is it orange flavored? Is it really orange flavored? You know. Um, so much better than Tang. Yeah. <laughs> so, But you're also rubbing shoulders with chefs. And have their questions and discourse about wine changed over time? Or No, chefs largely don't care about wine. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, that's a little unfair. But, I mean, chefs, I find that Sommeliers are much more interested in cooking than chefs are in wine. And there are a lot of Psalms who are really good cooks. But the, the chef world, I mean, it may be partly because of the physical exhaustion involved in being a chef. A lot of, I mean, a lot of times it seems like chefs, basically it's like whatever is within reach of the hand is what should be drunk. There's certainly some chefs who are very wine savvy and really love the stuff. And, and there's somewhere it's just kind of an, you know, which is fair, an adjunct to food. So but it's a different, it's, it is a different sensibility. The other thing is that, you know, at, at events, you know, I don't actually, I spend time with some chefs, but, but you're always cross scheduled against each other. And so you're floating around and the wine people tend to hang with the wine people and the chef people tend to hang with the chef people. And, you know, so what about the writing though? Because, you know, back to that a little bit, you were in creative writing, right? And how is that different than wine writing? Well, first off I was writing fiction. So the big difference is more the difference between journalism and fiction, which is nonfiction and fiction. So when, in terms of wine writing, I'm... So I'm you make more stuff up about wine. Then. Yeah, I just, I mean, the, the fiction training has been excellent for writing about wine because I just make it all up. And, and the fiction training gave me the ability to make it seem like I, I was actually telling the truth. Great percentages. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's 40% Grenache. What sounds good. What the hell? I don't care if it's a white wine. Yeah. Just go with it. Um, you know what the, what the fiction writing really did was it gave me... And this kind of goes back to new journalism, the sort of Gaetulis and Tom Wolfe and all that. It's it's taking some of the the techniques of fiction and applying them to journalism so that you, I mean, in writing fiction, you learn kind of dialogue and scene and, and things like that, which are actually very handy in the context of journalistic writing. Because you, even if you're writing pure fact, there you're structuring a story and you're and you're trying to write it in a way that has you know a narrative arc to it that has. You know, if you're if you're going to write about Josko Gravner, you want to be able to capture him in two or three sentences in a way that makes the person really get him. You know, if he's gettable, if you've got a great, you know, Gary Pisoni, Gary Pisoni is like a great subject for wine because he's got an incredibly large and crazy personality. But you still have to translate that into words and and writing fiction, which is a process of creating character, among other things, and putting character on a page and so on is is a great background for for writing well about people in a nonfiction context i think i mean at least it's helped me a lot um it's different too in that fiction is fiction is tough in that you're making everything up but it has to seem real i actually quite like 
having facts to work with. And the other thing is that I like trying to learn about new stuff that I don't know that I didn't just come out up with out of my head. And wine has proved so far pretty much inexhaustible, I think, because it encompasses you know, not just the liquid itself, but it's got, you know, it's economically fascinating. It's culturally fascinating. There's a vast history to it. The people involved in the thing are interesting. You know, it changes each year, unlike a lot of spirits that you might write about. You know, it's it's uh, biologically and, and climatologically fascinating. So you rarely run out of stuff. I mean, I could I could happily not do another value Chardonnay tasting for a while, but but as a as a that's what seems to have become the subject that I fell into as my career. I feel really lucky as a writer. I mean, if you see yourself more as a writer than a critic, and you're not necessarily looking to some of the big wine critic names for inspiration. Who would you be looking to? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 probably my models for writing are not wine writers necessarily. You know, I mean, and it goes anywhere from, you know, Joseph Mitchell at The New Yorker to, you know, John McPhee. Some of the really terrific nonfiction writers who are out there like that. Um, Mitchell was known for his eye for detail, right? Eye for detail and eye and ability to capture people on the page and capture kind of a a feel of the place. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's a different era of journalism where people were a little looser with the facts. Some of his characters that he wrote about are kind of composites of people he met in New York, but it's, you know... I'm also one of those. I, I, I suspected as much. I, I thought that there was more than one of you kind of lurking around in here, mashed into the the the, the, the sole levy that's sitting in front of me. Um, you know, A.J. Liebling on food is a great, great source of inspiration, I guess you'd say. Wine writing, not too much. I think partly there's a lot of unfortunately not that fascinating wine writing. And the other problem is that if once you have written a lot about wine, you don't honestly feel like reading that much more about wine. Cause you know, a lot of it already and you're not like reading for discovery working anymore. in the ice cream shop. You're like, yeah. I don't need an ice yeah. cream. You know, I was, I was, I was actually talking with Jordan McKay, who's a, a terrific wine a writer, writer. Yeah. And who co-wrote with Aaron Franklin, the Franklin barbecue book, which has been like insanely successful. And he said that Aaron Franklin, who is, you know, makes the most, sought after hungered for brisket in all of Texas when he's off work, likes to eat sushi, you know? And it's kind of like, yeah, when you're done with the brisket, 17 hours of making brisket, you might want something that doesn't seem like brisket at all. And that'd be sushi. But I mean, I think I, I mentioned to you at one point that, you know, Oberon Waugh, who used to write for the spectator, the, you know, <laughs> sort of quite wildly conservative British cultural and political magazine, was a wonderful wine writer. I don't, I don't think he, you know, he's much read now, but he had a kind of a, you know, sharply witty tone and an ability to, to sum up things quickly in a way that made you want to taste the wine. Kermit Lynch's first book is a great book about wine, you know, and it, it's, it's more about the experience of discovering the places of wine, you know. So there are some great wine books out there, but, but I think probably my inspirations are more outside of the wine world. What else about how consumers engage with wine and how professional wine writers and sommeliers engage with wine might be missing each other. What else is something we don't well, think about for how consumers question. look at it? Um, I think consumers, you know, I think a lot of times they don't want to think about it too much. They just want to know that what they bought was good and that they're not going to be disappointed. I mean, th there are a couple of crucial things when you're buying something. You want to not be disappointed or taken advantage of or ripped off. And that goes for wine and cars and anything else. They want it to taste great, you know, and I think that I do think that sometimes the, you know, the prevailing trend among sommeliers that I see is, is towards wines that are leaner and higher acid and, and 
then in theory, go better with food. The truth is a lot of consumers aren't into leaner and higher acid. And I sometimes wonder if there's a just a basic difference of palate between people who are in the business and taste wine constantly and people who are casual wine drinkers. Because, and I, you know, I'm, I'm shameless about using my, you know, in-laws and relatives and anybody I know who's not in the business as a test case, but they tend to like wines that have a fair amount of fruit and are softer and less directly acidic. And I think it's, I think, you know, that level of sort of sharp acidity is kind of an acquired taste. Once you acquire it, you don't tend to move away from it. I mean, it's a little bit like the burgundy thing. It's like once you start drinking burgundy, nobody, nobody ever falls out of love with burgundy. They, they tear their hair out about it, but they don't fall out of love with it. But so I think that there is a little bit of a assumption that, that the palate of your peers in the wine business is what the rest of the world likes, which isn't always the case and, and often isn't the case. How, what you do about that is a tough one. I'm not sure the answer is to recommend lots and lots of slightly off dry, massive red wines to people. But it is, there's a little bit of a intolerance or sense of righteousness about taste. And, and it's, you know, I, dealing with kind of a broad range of audience from everybody from folks who are just getting into wine to people who are, you know, master sommeliers. There's a pretty broad range of what people like and, and don't like. And so it's, it's worth taking that into account. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, it does for sommeliers, but I wonder if it answers it for you. Like, you know, as a writer, how much of your job is to bring people to new right. levels and how much of it is to be like, oh, okay, well, this is what people like, so let's let's give them that. Yeah, I, I try and balance it. Through. I mean, I try, I try to bring them to, let's see, I try and bring them things they would not have heard of before that they will like. You know, I'm, I'm, for better or worse, I have a, a relatively omnivorous palate and that I like some... I mean, there are moments when I think a big, you know, intense in-your-face Zinfandel with a lot of ripe fruit and not grotesque alcohol, but, you know, good amount of alcohol is great fun to drink. It's like, you know, have some chili or a burger and drink a big fruity California red and, and it can be a blast. And there are times when suddenly Muscadet, you know, is what I really, really want. So I don't have as much of... And it's, let's see, a, I guess an aesthetic agenda about how wine should be constructed as some of my peers do. Put it that way. That's kind of a slightly vague way of saying it. But at the same time, I don't want to just recommend stuff to people because it's the easy way out, you know, and say, just why don't you have some more, you know, whatever juice bomb wine you like and fine. I think, you know, I, I do think I'm helped by the fact that people do want to try new stuff these days and they want to, you know, they want to. Um, and why is that? I mean, where did that come from? What is that about? You know, I th as I said, I think it partly goes back to food. I think it's the willingness to, try, you know, the willingness to, to, you know, the, if you look around, it's like the, the, the amount of off the wall food that, that has become standard in the U S compared to what it once was. It's really amazing. You know, sushi is, sushi is a given. People aren't that freaked out by sushi. They've heard of sushi. Then strange you know you you know i think you'll see you know the chipotle equivalent of korean food turn up at some point fairly soon if david chang isn't working on it already you know you're gonna see there's all sorts of things in the food world that people just are more than willing to try these days than they were before and i think that extends to wine as well i think also the more people drink wine the more broadly interested they are in you know uh other other new wines and so on you know it's there is always going to be a certain percentage of people who want a big fat Chardonnay 
and nothing else. You know, and there's and there are just as there are always going to be some people who want peanut butter on white bread with grape jelly, and that's it. And that's fine. That's you know, that's the, there's a lot of people in the world, but I think the the level of willingness to experiment has risen across the board in food and wine. I mean, we certainly see it in the magazine with food. If you you go back 15 years and look at what we were writing about, it was not nearly as kind of broad reaching as it is now. And and so that that means that, you know, if let's say I want to recommend a fairly fruity, substantial red wine, well, that doesn't have to be, you know, juice box full of Merlot from a ripe climate. That can that can be Take your pick. It'd be Nera d'Avola from Sicily. It could be, you know, it could be Giorgitico um, from Greece. It could be... You said know, that quite well, by the way. Thank you. I've been pra- That is another one I've been practicing for several hours, you know. Um, I was waiting to, to, to sneak it in. But, you know, suddenly there are these stylistic cognates for the familiar wines that are all around the world. And, and with their slight differences, you know, there's a lot of Portuguese... There's a lot of great Portuguese red table wines that people don't know about that that they would love that are, that tend to be on the kind of, you know, big, dark, spicy red zone, but are grapes that they've never run into before. And that's part of the fun for me is, is it's pushing people not so much like, it's not like you try and take them from, you know, you don't try and take them from 10 buck Clodobas Chardonnay straight to Amphora aged Rebola Jawa. You, you try and take them, you know, to move them a little bit at a time towards more interesting things. The main thing is just to open their minds so that then they know enough about wine so then they're willing to experiment on their own. So you roll the tape forward 10 years. Yeah. We do this interview again in another decade. What will you have achieved and what will the landscape look like? One thing I would like to do is publish at least one book. I'm hampered in terms of writing long by the nature of the magazine format. And there are some things I'd like to write at more length. And so I would like to do that. What are some of those? Um, I'm going to bypass that because I have the superstition that I don't like write, I don't like talking about possible books until I'm actually engaged in them because it tends to kill the idea. Fair enough. You start to see the flaws before you actually get started on the... So it's like a Stephen King book. You're killing, uh, killing things yes, in the book. exactly. <laughs> yes, it's, it's going to be my revenge book about everybody who's crossed me in the wine business. Demon, cats, and wine. There's not too many people. I did get thrown out of one wine store on... Uh, down in Tribeca at one point when I was selling wine. I still find that guy annoying, but I don't think he's in the business anymore. So um, I would hope in, I don't know, it's 10, it's 10 years from now. It's, it's weird because it's like a lot has changed in 10 years. I'd love to see the increased interest in wine in the U.S. and increased consumption of wine rise even more and even more rapidly, which I, you know, we're still, we're much more of a wine drinking country than we used to be. But we're still not really a wine drinking country in the way that, you know, the European countries are. There's a big demographic under 21 that we could potentially target. Yes, I know. There's a lot of people down there, you know, in that youthful zone. Um, and, you know, that's something I hope to see. I I hope to, you know, I'd love to see wine available to be shipped across the country without it being regulated state by state, which is bonkers. It, uh, you know, it's just so frustrating. It's, it, you know... It's frustrating on a very personal journalistic level because we can write about in the, in Food Mine. I can write about a, a someone making honey in Eastern Oregon from biodynamic, you know, whatever flowers, you know, uh, lotus flowers. Who the hell knows? And in amounts of like a hundred jars of every six months, and we can run that in the magazine. 
And it doesn't matter that you can't buy it in New York because you just write to them and they send you the honey. It's like, and it, and it actually has an effect too when we write about something like that. It increases their sales enormously. If I write about a tiny production wine, Jolie Laid or something like that from California, you know, the problem is that nobody can get it. They can't, they can't just write to the winery and say, you know, please send it to me. And it's, and it's a pity. It's, uh, it's very frustrating. You know, some states you can, some states you can't. You know, the whole, the whole thing is irritating, so it would be nice if that would change. I'm not holding my breath. The forces against that changing have an enormous amount of money. So, we'll see. I mean, I don't know. It'd be, fun. It'd be cool, and I don't know if we'll see it or not, but it would be cool if wine, in some context... And, uh, I'd be happy if it were me, but I'd be happy if it were someone else too. If there were a TV show about wine that actually drew an audience the way that Top Chef does or something like that. I don't know. It'd be great to have, you know, that kind of outreach. You know, you, you saw that, that happened one time with, with Sideways where you had a movie, you know, mass, I mean, it was an indie movie, but it was, you know, but even with an independent movie like that, the audience was so huge, it actually moved the needle quite a bit in terms of Pinot Noir consumption in, in the U.S. or Pinot Noir interest. So it'd be nice to see that happen again and maybe in a more sustained way. I mean, it did result in a lot of Pinot Noir being planted in places that it probably shouldn't be planted, but what are you going to do? When I think of that effect, the examples that often come to mind for me are actually often liquor, like yeah. Sex in the City and Cosmopolitans off vodka right. and Mad Men off whiskey. Yeah. Seems huge. No, it seems, I mean, the bourbon thing is crazy. It's, it's just taken off. And I think Mad Men had a lot to do with it. And cocktails in general have been pushed by the success of shows like that on TV. If there were a Mad Men level of popularity show that had wine as significant focus in the show, you know, whether it was set in the wine country or whether it was, you know, in whatever it is, you know, set among sommeliers in a restaurant or whatever, you know, that would, it's, it's surprising how much effect that has on changing people's tastes. Ray Isle, he's seen things change and not change over 10 years as the executive wine editor at Food and Wine Magazine. Thank you very much for being here today. Let me, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Ray Isle, the executive wine editor of Food and Wine. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. I mean, when, when I was getting into wine, it was still, a, it wasn't cool. There was no, there was a coolness factor. I mean, wine is actually kind of cool now, which kind of mind blowing. You know, there was no cool to be had with wine. You know, there were sommeliers, but it wasn't like, I mean, restaurants weren't a, a, as cool as they are now too. So that, that has, has changed a lot, but I don't think, you know, I don't think there was nearly as much interest in getting into wine as a career back then as there is now I, I, in the slightest.